This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Dynasty Download, the show where we prove Dynasty League fantasy is the best form there is. I'm Tom Duncan. And normally this would be the space for my co-host, except he is off tonight. Instead, we are bringing in a guest from the other podcast on our network, the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. And why don't you say hi? Hi, it's Dana Duncan, four-time champion of this uh, Dynasty League that uh, you and Ethan are part of. Yeah, and it burns Ethan every single day. And a little bit to me, too. But tonight we are recapping week two of the NFL Slate 2021. Uh, Just first, we have a few housekeeping notes. If you would like to contact the show or have a question for us, please write us at dynastydownload10 at gmail.com. If you'd like to be on our mailing list this year or going forward, please send us a note there. Also, you can now follow us on Twitter at dydownload2020, and you can now find every episode of the show on dynasty-download.captivate.fm. Finally, please follow, rate, and review the show so that more people can discover that Dynasty Fantasy is the best form there is. All right, let's get right into the review of this weekend's games. As we are recording this before Monday Night Football, Let's keep that one out of the discussion because we're not previewing that game. We'll react to it later this week. But what was your biggest impression from either Thursday night's games or any of the ones yesterday on Sunday? Heineke for the Redskins was just unbelievable for a guy uh, who's an undrafted free agent who just gets thrust into this. Um, I thought that uh, the Giants defense would be owning him. Uh, and he looked every bit the NFL quarterback. And I also thought, really, Daniel Jones had one of his best games of his career so far, especially fantasy-wise. I think if he had uh, had the touchdown that stood for his rushing one instead of that weird holding penalty, that he would have been over 100 yards rushing. He would have been pretty close to Lamar Jackson levels for both his throwing and uh, rushing levels going into this weekend. Yes, uh, he he did look very good. I I did not realize he was quite the runner that uh, he ended up being on that game. Um, I just kind of thought he was more of the drop back passer type, but he seemed to do very well at that. And and I don't know if this is a sign of things to come or if it's just a one game aberration, but he's somebody to keep on your radar on a short week going against a defense that most people had projected to be one of the maybe top 10 of the year in Washington that has such a fearsome defensive front that offensive line held up really well. And he had a lot of designed runs for him specifically. Now, a lot of people remember back to last season, and I think it was a game against the Eagles where he took off for almost an 80 yard touchdown and tripped on like the 20 yard line, just completely ate the turf monster But I think that if he carves out some space with his rushing and is going to be the consistent quarterback for the Giants, he could be a sneaky, I guess, week-to-week streamer at the quarterback position. He could. And without getting too far off of that, the other one that I had really was, I I cannot imagine that uh, David Carr has continued uh, to perform the way he has so far this season. 
Well, as an analyst, David Carr is pretty good. His brother Derek has also thrown for almost Derek Carr. Just showing my age. Oh, yeah, you did get that one. Uh, Yeah, David Carr hasn't been in the league for a number of years because the Houston Texans organization basically destroyed his body by not getting him any offensive linemen for 10 years. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, he's almost thrown for, what, 800 yards, uh, 900 yards already this season? I think he's the number one passer going into week three. He's looked phenomenal. His passes are crisp. They're on the mark. Um, he's reading the defense as well. And everybody kind of has been waiting for this because for all those years, John Gruden always played with these mediocre quarterbacks that somehow or another, the minute he would get on or or bring them onto his team, suddenly became like superstars. Yeah, Rich Gannon comes to mind. But I think the biggest... Brad Johnson. Well... I'll pump the brakes a little bit with Brad Johnson. He was an effective quarterback. I wouldn't say he was a great quarterback by the time Gruden got him. He was much more prolific when he was with Minnesota than when he was with Tampa Bay. That being said, though, with all of the trade talk and the Raiders potentially being a destination for both Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers over the offseason, to see Derek Carr, who made comments earlier in the offseason that if he was not playing for the Raiders, he was going to retire leading the league after two weeks, particularly having played both Baltimore and Pittsburgh, it's not something I would have predicted two weeks ago. No, I wouldn't have either. I, uh, you know, quite frankly, he's kind of had a bum rap. He's always been the guy that was perceived as just a placeholder. Um, I don't know why, but uh, he, he has the talent and he has the ability to, uh, to be in that offense. So I think things are finally gelling. All right. Before we get too much further though, let's get to the week one top tens at each position. Let's start with quarterback going into Monday night football. The top 10 performers at the quarterback position are Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Derek Carr, Tom Brady, Daniel Jones, Kirk Cousins, Teddy Bridgewater, and Taylor Heineke. For the running backs, we had Derrick Henry, who had two times the next closest guy on this list as far as points. He had over 50 points. Tony Pollard in number two had only 24. Christian McCaffrey, Cordero Patterson, who both uh, ends up on the wide receiver and running back list. Devin Singletary, Delvin Cook. Austin Eckler, J.D. McKissick, Ezekiel Elliott, and Najee Harris. At wide receiver, we had Cooper Cup, followed by another big game for Tyler Lockett, Rondale Moore, Hollywood Brown, Henry Ruggs III, Terry McLaurin, Cortland Sutton, Mike Evans, Freddie Swain, and again, Cordero Patterson as the number 10 wide receiver this week. Tight end, a couple of the more familiar names at the top, Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, Max Williams, Noah Fant, Jack Doyle, Foster Moreau, Kyle Pitts, Darren Waller, Dawson Knox, and Ricky Seals-Jones. Biggest surprises, first one for me, and I made this comment while we were watching the games together yesterday because we were together for once, best for last. 
basically the primetime games have siphoned off some of the most exciting football. The late game slate and the primetime Sunday night game, and for that matter, the Thursday night games have been the best ones we've had so far. The noon games in both week one and week two were just awful. Yeah, the the the, the noon games just don't seem to have much pizzazz at all. In fact, they're almost unwatchable. It, they just look bad. They, the, there's no flow to them. The teams don't seem like they're – I mean – this is the NFL. There are there's talent on every roster, and I think part of the the allure of certain teams is there's just a certain presence they have. There's a certain feel the team has, uh, uh, whether they're more motivated, whatever you want. The, some of these games just seemed listless. Well, it seemed more like joint practices than it did actual football games. I would agree. I mean, that that kind of does sum it up. And given the state of what we got last week with like the Packers game and a couple of the other ones, I mean, realistically, we did not see some of the big surprises that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. But we had some lopsided victories that it just looked like this a different team showed up from week one to week two. All right. The next thing that I had on my list, Kyler Murray goes off again. I think he was responsible for four passing touchdowns and another rushing touchdown after he had a five-touchdown game against Tennessee. He is proving to be quite possibly the number one quarterback in fantasy right now. First of all, he's got a ton of talent around him, even with Larry Fitzgerald retiring. Um, I think actually Larry Fitzgerald became kind of, uh, because he had lost so much speed, to become somewhat of a liability with that offense. But they just have so many so many weapons that they can utilize and they don't even need that much of a running game just to have a guy to hand off once in a while because Murray is your running back. He's the primary runner. And it's amazing that how he can change the dynamic of the game because you got guys, linebackers, linemen who can't rush the passer hard unless they stay within a particular lane because they know he's going to slip out and get the first down on his own. Well, I know I've been very critical of Cliff Kingsbury on this program before, and one of the things that I always think that his particular offense, by comparison to the rest of the Air Raid offense, is different. The Air Raid offense, while it has air in its name, did run the football, particularly under the Pirate at Texas Tech. So there's an element of that that's missing in this. And I wonder if teams are going to respond differently than the Vikings and the Titans have in the first two weeks. To be fair, the Vikings and the Titans have allowed a lot of points and yards to other teams. I'll be curious when this goes up against, uh, let's say Seattle or San Francisco or the Rams who are all teams that are used to the four wide set and spreading the ball out and basically using the passing game as somewhat of a running game at times with wide receiver screens and small short passes that get you into space. But I think that with DeAndre Hopkins cementing the outside receiver position particularly, and then you get A.J. Green, who was involved in this game, that with Christian Kirk and Rondale Moore kind of running some of the underneath routes, that you're going to have a lot of run after the catch ability for those two. They're going to eat a lot of targets. Rondale Moore has picked up a lot of targets in volume over the first two weeks of the season. They clearly are going to be going to him 
Kirk was a little bit more silent in this game compared to week one, but as long as Kyler's healthy and his shoulder was knocked around last year towards the end of the year that really held him down as being the number one quarterback that he was for the first half of last year, his rushing floor is going to help basically keep him near the top five all year, depending on the game. And then his passing ability and the volume of passing in this offense, he's probably the odds on favorite to be the number one quarterback in fantasy. And I'm not sure it's going to be close. So the next one I had on my list, Saquon Barkley continues to disappoint. I know he's coming off of the knee injury. He's had two very difficult matchups in Denver and the Giants so far, and we did see him rip off one big run against Washington the other night. But realistically, is there an outlook that says maybe even on the back half of this season that Saquon Barkley might become the viable running back that he once was? That's what I've been betting on. I mean, I took him in my office league based on the idea that he was going to start out slow and then pick up momentum that by the end of the season and into the playoffs, he would be a workhorse. And I think to some extent, the Giants have been able to uh, allow that to happen by just their sheer passing or the success of their passing game. Uh, They don't need it. But once the weather starts to turn colder in New York and it's a uh, a, a November, late October, early November type game in uh, in New Jersey, I think you're going to see them rely on him much more. And I think, uh, I think the knee is responding, but I think they're trying to do it in a um, logical and, you know, progressive manner instead of just sticking him out there and saying, run it. Well, my problem with Saquon was is where he was being drafted with consideration toward the knee. They were going to have a difficult opening schedule. You were basically drafting him at worst in the second round, and I don't think he was worth going above round three as far as uh, I was concerned, given that you had to bake in. There were going to be a few games that he might miss. There might be a few other games where he was trying to get healthy, and you didn't know what the Giants offense was going to be. Right now, I wouldn't even say that the Giants passing game was overly great. They finally got some Kenny Golliday touches in this game. I don't know if he I think he had one catch in game or week one, and they were really, really stuck against Denver, save for a late touchdown in that game. But realistically, their only option so far has been Sterling Shepard gets a ton of catches in that offense. Evan Ingram has yet to be healthy. And we had Darius Slayton drop a long touchdown on, even though he caught another one. So while it may be slightly rounding into form, I would caution that Thursday night games have often been higher scoring comparatively to other games in the week. And so you might want to bake that into any assessments that you're going to have. I think coming out next weekend, I don't know who they're playing right now. We'll get to that in our preview as we go along later in the week, but it's possible that the Giants look as good as they did Thursday night. It's a possibility that they also regress. I don't know. My fourth issue, or I guess this would be the, yeah, the fourth issue. Did Rob Gronkowski drink from the fountain of youth with Tom Brady? Like, are they eating the uh, fetuses of small unborn babies? Be careful of that. It's obviously a joke. I know, but... 
there's a certain Tom Brady. I think everybody's made a comment that he looks better now than he did in his twenties. <laughs> yeah, I know. Everybody keeps waiting for his decline, and he just keeps uh, fooling everybody. As far as Gronk goes, he <laughs> the 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 time off uh, that he had, I think, helped him heal. He was just always uh, a pile of injuries, and I don't think those uh, uh, injuries are quite as bad or as significant as they were. So that's helped him. The other is he's, <laughs> and I hate to use this word when I'm talking about Gronkowski, but he's smarter than he was. He knows the little things. Like uh, the one play that I remembered uh, from week one where it was a, uh, he was supposed to block and he sees Brady kind of motion with his eyes that he should release and he threw him a touchdown over the middle. The play wasn't designed that way. It's having that intuition between Brady and him that has been going on for so many years that they and know what each other's thinking, that they're able to make things look smoothly without uh, having even really practiced it or had it drawn up that way. Uh, and I do think there is something to be said for that at both of those points. I just think that he has put up two highly productive weeks. I think this is the second best fantasy start he's ever had only topped by one other from 2015 when he was peak Gronk. So this might be somehow a weird Renaissance, but as you mentioned a minute ago, he was retired two years ago and he just turned 32. This is not supposed to be when you're scoring your most points as a productive fantasy tight end. Well, here's a question for you. Is now the time to uh, offload if you're if you're in a dynasty league? Go, hey, anybody want Gronk? I'll trade him to you for a first round pick or even a second round pick and another tight end. It would depend on the league. The current owner of him in our league is kind of all in for this year and next year. I think that's the type of asset that you'd trade to try and recoup something if you could. But this is a guy that you don't know how large the window is. He's a great redraft possibility, but I don't know if you want to hold on to him long term if you're kind of in the building stages of your team. All right, another player who at one time was a disappointment, but has had two strong games to start the season. Hollywood Brown has become the number one target in the Ravens offense, and boy, have they needed it so far. But in that up and down shootout last night, he comes up with six catches for 113 yards and a score and has truly proved his value with a productive top five quarterback. Yeah, and and whether it's just been inconsistencies or it's been that he's been hurt a lot, for whatever reason, he's just always been this guy that everybody raves about, but has not really produced the way everyone thought he would. Until now. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, again, is this just a matter of that he's much more consistent now than he was or and that he's now figured it out? Is it because of necessity that they've had to do this? Uh, throw to him because they've had so many injuries among their running backs and their wide receivers? Well, Lamar Jackson's the number one running back for the Ravens and has been for a couple of seasons. He had over 100 yards last night again. 
And I think that's going to be more of the case than anything else. But he has had issues with passing, particularly last season when he wasn't the MVP and he was having such a slow start to begin the year was his lack of targets. Now that's with also the decline of Mark Andrews coming as well. And Rashad Bateman being out for the first, I think at least four weeks of the season with his surgery. So this was not something that we were predicting, particularly after they lost the game to the Raiders that Hollywood Brown was going to have another big game, but he has clearly proven his value. I said it on last week's show. I needed to see it one more time. I've seen it one more time. I'm willing to bet on this guy at least as far as a pickup, if he's somehow available in your league, even in a redraft setting, I think he's gotten enough volume and produced in the first two games. Yes, they've been favorable passing matchups, but given how much play action is coming out of that offense and how speedy that guy is, he could be a better version of Henry Ruggs in this offense where they're able to hit him with some deep balls or some deep crossers and keep him a viable receiver, even at a five or six targets a game where he just picks up big chunk plays. I think he's a guy that you could viably start in your flex and maybe competing for a wide receiver two, wide receiver three status by the end of the year if this keeps up. I'll look at his numbers from last year. Last year he had 100 targets, 58 receptions. He's almost half of the balls actually are in his hands and stay in his hands last year for 769 yards total in receiving, eight touchdowns. Already this year, he's had 16 targets, 12 receptions. That means four balls have missed, 182 yards, and two touchdowns. He's on pace to almost double his yardage and touchdowns. Yeah, and from where you probably drafted him, if you drafted him at all, I think this is you know possibly one of the steals of the year. All right, next one up for me, three wide receivers that saw huge production value increases in targets and volume, although we expected it from Terry McLaurin, but Cortland Sutton and Michael Pittman Jr. also saw big increases in their volume, particularly this weekend in shootout games. What do you see as their long-term value going forward? Uh, Sutton uh, will have long-term value simply because it looks like Bridgewater is the answer for the immediate future for the Broncos. And he has a rapport with Sutton that I never saw between Sutton and... um, Drew Locke. Drew Locke, yes. And so I think that's going to continue. Pittman, (laughs) it's going to all depend on... Uh, on uh, Carson Wentz. It's all going to depend on Carson Wentz's foot. If he's out, who knows? Because I, I just, you know, it's impossible to say once you have a backup. Agreed. I didn't see any drop-off between what we expected out of Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke as far as it came to McLaurin the other night, and that was with a tough matchup with James Bradbury, who shut down receivers all of last season. I think Sutton, we could see a even better version of his 2019 season because he was playing a good portion of his season with Drew Locke at that point, and he kind of tailed off because of that towards the end of 2019, but he had 1,100 yards that season and I think at least six touchdowns. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I know that Denver has a lot of pass catchers on this team, KJ Hamler and 
Noah Fant and the two running backs that both got a lot of work yesterday. But the simple fact is, is with Jerry Judy out, they needed a number one target. And this guy got force fed the ball yesterday to the tune of, I think, 13 catches for 159 yards. And it's not like they were going away from him because Jacksonville could stop it. I know it's Jacksonville, but I think they have the Jets next week. So it's not like it's going to get any better or worse. And realistically, the defenses in the NFC West, the Chiefs, the uh, Chargers, and the Raiders, you know, they're not necessarily the greatest defenses in the world, although the Chargers did a good job of preventing Dallas from going up and down the field on them. I just simply think that he's going to have a lot of opportunities if Judy's out longer as opposed to shorter. And, you know, he could see a large volume. But I agree with you on Pittman. I don't know if I would start Pittman if Wentz is not starting. If Wentz is starting, I saw enough yesterday against a good Rams defense that was the number one defense in football, both fantasy and I think regular football, that he could end up being a large volume target for that team as well. But it's a matter of, you know, if you've got Jacob Eason throwing to him, I just don't think the ball is going to get there. The other two that I had down on the list, both came from the same game. One, Tom Brady, again, is ridiculous. Nine touchdowns in two weeks. But the other one being Cordero Patterson, who we talked about in the top tens. He qualifies right now, at least on Yahoo, as a running back and a wide receiver. This is a guy that I think it right now is the backup running back to Mike Davis in Atlanta with an offense that is clearly going to be needing to throw the ball due to how poor their defense is and is going to be playing from behind. But he's also qualifying as a wide receiver because he plays both positions. This is a guy that got multiple touchdowns, one I think rushing and then one also receiving yesterday in what I thought was actually an extraordinary catch and play by him off of a Matt Ryan scramble. But long term, given that this guy could qualify at both positions, I think he's owned in more than 50% of leagues, but if he's somehow out there and he qualifies as both, this could be somehow a weird secret weapon for people. I think it'll depend a lot on how many flex positions you have, but I mean, he's basically going to be a flex two on a consistent basis. I think you're going to have a hard time. It's going to be difficult to rely on him for set numbers on a consistent basis because he's not going to be a key featured person in their offensive schemes necessarily. I'm not sure I agree with that. I thought I saw a consistent effort by them to get him the ball in both passing game usage and in the running game. And if that's going to be the case, I mean, they gave him, I think, like eight or nine carries in the running game in week one. If that's going to continue to be the case, he's picking up stats both Uh, as far as running back and wide receiver and his just volume of touches is going to be increasing with his qualification at either position. You could basically be getting a handcuff running back with wide receiver value, or for that matter, a backup running back or wide receiver uh, two that combines for both the ability of a guy that would be maybe a fourth wide receiver on the team or a third running back, but you combine the stats and all of a sudden they become flex viable. I th- I don't think this is going away. There's a reason that they got rid of Kadre Allison and basically didn't go with another running back on the team that he is their backup running back and he's getting at least enough in the rotation to be viable. Let's switch segments. And these are a couple of other observations I had 
I'm going to ask you something or nothing about a particular topic or question. You have to respond either something or nothing, and then let me go into or go into the details why you think it's something or nothing. So first up, Adam Thielen has three touchdowns in two weeks. Nothing. He uh, might be prolific as far as the uh, Vikings offense goes right now, but uh, they have so many problems, whether it's their defense or their inability to close games. I, I just I don't think Thieland is going to be as prolific. I think he's benefiting from more attention being paid to hit, uh, Jefferson on the other side of the field. And I think it's going to balance out more as time goes by. I'm not saying he's not going to be uh, a key contributor, but I don't think you're going to see three touchdowns in the next two weeks. This is a guy last year that had 14 touchdowns, and I think in the last two to three seasons has only had less red zone targets than Devontae Adams. I think this is something only because I don't treat Adam Thielen as an elite wide receiver that's going to get a high volume of targets and catches in the way that he once did about four or five years ago when he first broke in. But this is a guy that's going to be the red zone target in a team that's going to be constantly playing from behind that's going to get a lot of garbage points, that this is more something than nothing. You can basically, it's going to be a 50-50 proposition on a given week that he'll have a touchdown or not. That makes him flex viable, at least, especially in a redraft league. I don't think he's going to be elite, but you probably draft him in the fifth or sixth round. This is a guy that could be your third or fourth wide receiver, and if he gets a touchdown and a few other catches, particularly in a PPR setting, he's at least valuable that he's going to get you double-digit points. There might be a few weeks where he has double-digit touchdowns like he did last season. You're just going to have to take the chance that there may also be a few games where he gets next to nothing and work those in. But I think more than likely, the touchdown volume that we saw last year is probably likely to stay. Daniel Jones, Jared Goff, Kirk Cousins, Teddy Bridgewater, Taylor Heineke, just a few of the names that have finished already inside the top 10 on a particular week for last season. Seems like we're getting up and down quarterback play and quarterback weeks from even the top players. There's maybe only a few consistent ones that are going to be elite. Something or nothing? It's something, but I'm not sure what that something is necessarily. We have a bunch of teams that did not play a lot in preseason their key starters and practice is you know fine but it's a game condition that matters and I think you're going to see probably about the first four weeks uh, where you're going to see inconsistent offenses and specifically inconsistent quarterback play I think ultimately it's going to settle down and you're going to see those names kind of shift back to the standards as they have been over the last several years, with the possible exception that I think Bridgewater may very well stay in that group. And I really like uh, Heineke, so I'm not sure where that'll go, but I can't imagine he's going to continue to put up the numbers he has so far. Yeah, I wouldn't expect Kirk Cousins or Jared Goff to necessarily have consistent top 10 value. Those have been a couple of guys, kind of like Derek Carr, that hovered around that 12th or 13th quarterback in fantasy on a yearly basis. The simple standpoint, though, is is that if you're going to get some of the 
elite quarterbacks, at least so far. Lamar Jackson had a couple of decent games. He had one really big game. He had a mediocre game against the Raiders. Patrick Mahomes has put up huge numbers in the first two weeks, and it looks like he's going to need to continue to do that for the Chiefs to be viable because they had to come back against Cleveland in week one and then lost to the Ravens last night. You know, Kyler Murray's going off, but he's adding both passing volume and rushing with his legs. Dak put up huge numbers in week one, cooled off a little bit in this week two, but basically some of the elite guys that we thought so far have been elite, but I think the gulf between the guys that were up and down marginal consistent starters and then the top five elite quarterbacks is going to be the gulf that eventually really uh, sets in about midseason where, you know, Dak, Tom Brady, Mahomes, Lamar, Kyler, they're all just going to be better than the rest. And I think it'll start to prove itself out. You're going to have to, if you're going with the streaming strategy, really um, bank on particularly good weeks because I think that the quarterback position has become more valuable given the amount of rushing we have from certain quarterbacks and how basically one of these quarterback performances like Kyler the last two weeks can win you your league on a given week. King Henry's big day, something or nothing? Something, simply because Derrick Henry just amazes me. Just when you think there's no way he could do it again because of the amount of touches he's had and the beating he's taken, he's just phenomenal. Uh, The fact that he could put up those kind of numbers and do it again this year, and I don't see him slowing down. I think ultimately he's going to hit the wall at some point, and it's going to go fast. But, I mean, I'm putting him in that elite category of bruisers like uh, John Riggins, Earl Campbell, um, and uh, Jerome Bettis, and all of them were able to apparent or to do those types of act, uh, things on a long term basis until they reached into their thirties. So maybe we've just been prejudging him uh, erroneously. I think this is something as well. What's the old Mark Twain line? The reports of my demise were premature, or something to that effect. We all were sitting on King Henry's grave last week with his poor performance against Arizona. And realistically, we were even still there at halftime of the Seahawks game. And then he absolutely explodes in the second half and basically carries Tennessee on his back to the win. I don't know. I think it's something that he's still there. He's still going to be relevant because he's a fucking freak. But Good luck predicting the games where he's going to have some cooldown periods, and then he's going to have these absolutely enormous 200-yard games. I think the biggest thing that gives me some positivity going forward on him was how much he was used in the passing game. I want to say he caught six or seven balls for over 50 yards in that game, and that's just huge given that that was the big knock on him is just not involved in the passing game. Tony Pollard eating into Ezekiel Elliott's uh, touches. Let's, let's go with that. Tony Pollard eating into Ezekiel Elliott's touches with the Cowboys, something or nothing, something and something big, because I can't imagine Zeke is going to be there, um, next year. In fact, if Pollard plays as well as he has been, I think you're seeing with Pollard, uh, the Cowboys version of, uh, Aaron Eckler, a guy that was supposed to be a, Hmm? Austin Eckler, excuse me, of Austin Eckler, 
a guy who's been eating or was supposedly their third down back, the guy who was going to catch the ball out of the backfield and has been really good in a more zone blocking scheme, it would not surprise me at all. Let's say the Cowboys at the, uh, or not quite the halfway mark, the, at game eight are two and six. I wouldn't be surprised if the Cowboys don't try to unload Zeke at that time and get like a, uh, a second round draft pick or something from somebody who wants him for the playoff run. I think the trade deadline is week six yet, which I think we have one of the earliest deadlines of any sport as far as trade deadline. But that being said, I don't think that the trade value of Zeke is going to be particularly high given that yes, he's getting been productive, but most teams just don't want to pay a running back and you'd have to eat a ton of salary in order to take him on. I think it's more likely that the Cowboys basically eat salary on both him and potentially Amari Cooper next season because they're already close to the cap numbers already, and they just paid Dak Prescott. It's just not two positions, given that they have cheaper options in both Michael Gallup and C.D. Lamb by comparison to Cooper, and for that matter of productive uh, Tony Pollard that they can carry that much salary for those two guys and expect to still field a team that's balanced and capable. Even though this is a great offense right now, I don't know if that offense alone is going to be able to carry them to enough wins to be a Super Bowl contender. Although that has yet to be seen. We'll see as the season unfolds. They got a great win yesterday in Los Angeles. J.D. McKissick, still a factor in Washington. Something or nothing? Uh, something. I think McKissick is going to be a factor and is going to be a key factor for the Washington football team from this point forward. I don't know. From week one, I I was ready to dismiss McKissick as being the role he had. And yes, he picked up kind of a cheap touchdown in the two-minute during that game on Thursday night but his passing game volume was still there in a game that they had to go into shootout mode. Antonio Gibson, while he got a lot of carries, just was not nearly as efficient or effective going into this game as he was in week one, which was a much tougher grinded out game against uh, the chargers. I don't know. I, I think he could have a role, but it just would be dependent on the week. It's kind of like what we got out of him last year or Naheem Himes, it could go in a multitude of directions. I don't know if it eats too much into Antonio Gibson, but if the matchup is right and you might be able to predict a shootout, maybe McKissick has another big day. I think it's unusual that he got into the top 10 again, but given what we saw last season, they clearly like him as the passing down back in that offense. 49ers offense disappoints. Something or nothing? Nothing. They'll get it figured out. It's just a matter of when. It may end up taking a change of quarterback ultimately to get it done, but they'll figure it out. They've been kind of struggling, save for their running game in week one, but they already brought in Trey Lance for a gadget play touchdown against the Lions. And I know that the Eagles defense is pretty good, given how badly they whipped the Falcons in week one. But realistically speaking, and this was a game where I predicted the Eagles to actually upset the Niners and they kept it relatively close for most of the game to see George Kittle, to see Brandon Ayuk barely get anything for either week. 
I don't know. And the fact that we get this rotating carousel where Trey Sermon is currently in the concussion protocol and Jermichael Hasty injured his ankle already. Jeff Wilson's not going to be back until at least week seven or eight. And for that matter, we had uh, Eli Mitchell leave the game for a while. I just don't know what this offense is going to be right now. And we know it's supposed to be productive. We know they're supposed to have one of the easiest schedules down the stretch along with Denver going into the playoffs. I just don't know who it's going to be that's going to emerge and that we tap. Save for Debo Samuel, he's been the only consistent performer for that team right now. And even as I speak, Debo could be out with an injury. He's another guy that had terrible injury luck over his few years in the NFL. I just don't know what this team is going to be yet, and I'm just waiting for it to sort itself out. Is their offense going to be always this pedestrian? No, I would agree with you there. It's just really confusing and frustrating for any of the guys that invested heavily in this team as a fantasy prospect going into this year so far. Cooper Cup as a wide receiver one, something or nothing? Uh, it's something as long as he has Matt Stafford throwing him the ball because he was a not a, close to a number uh, one wide receiver last year when he had Jared Goff throwing him the ball. I think it's something as well, but... That's partly because a couple of years ago, it was something at that point that he was a wide receiver one on the year, and he has just been getting much more work this season so far than Robert Woods has. Robert Woods has been sneakily one of the top 15 wide receivers for the past, I think, four years, whereas Cooper Cup has had some really great games, but he's also had some really down games. I think right now that the Rams passing offense is extremely capable and Matt Stafford is proving how good of an acquisition that was for them. That being said, you know, how long is a slot receiver? Because that's really what Cooper Cup is going to be one of the top targets and number one wide receivers in fantasy. I think he's much more likely than one of the other guys I'm going to get to in a second, but it's still. I think he's at worst a wide receiver too, but from where you drafted him with the potential for a wide receiver one upside, boy, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say anything different for how they've performed the first two weeks and how many points he's gotten so far. How or should we discuss Julian Edelman or his uh, predecessor and his name dropped? Julian Edelman was never a top or a wide receiver one. No, but the, just the amount of prolific catches and targets that they had. Yeah, but Cup is catching a lot of targets and getting into the end zone. He's also getting long touchdowns. Like, that's the productivity. To be fair, Devontae Adams operates a lot out of the slot for Green Bay as well. So, but I don't think anybody's calling him a slot wide receiver. And Coop moves around enough that he's not exactly a slot wide receiver. I guess I just don't know. It, it, uh, it's tough to say. I mean... He's put up the production. He's given us no indication otherwise. This is going to be a productive offense. Okay. Henry Ruggs getting more than three catches in a game. Something or nothing? Something. Last year was Nelson Aguilar. Um, For whatever reason, all of a sudden, some wide receiver in the Raiders offense seems to figure things out. So maybe this is just the point where Ruggs has finally started to figure it out. You might see some consistency. Is he going to be a number one? Is he ever going to be anything great? Probably not. But 
three catches, you know, he's a serviceable backup on your roster. Well, the reason I say this is, is that he has never had more than three catches in a game till yesterday. And he finished with a top 10 fantasy game. But realistically, most of that came on one big play late in the game against Pittsburgh's defense. Now, I think it is notable it came against Pittsburgh's defense, but he is a home run threat. He is the stretch the field guy. He is not going to get a high volume of targets, so he's going to need to be really efficient. He is the Raiders version of Deshaun Jackson right now, and I don't know if you can count on that for week-in, week-out value because it, clearly the number one option on this team is going to be Darren Waller, and then probably number two right now as it stands is Brian Edwards. But with that being said, you know, if you have him in best ball, that he stays healthy, he could hit one of these 40-yard touchdowns and basically win you your week out of your flex position. I just don't know if I'm able to see him as a viable flex option because of what's going to be a potential inconsistency and his inability to stay healthy, at least so far in his NFL career. The last one I have on my list kind of compares to both Ruggs and Cooper Cup. It's a guy that I wrote off to begin the season because he basically took away two or three games from last season. Most of his points were in basically two or three big outings, and that was Tyler Lockett. He started off the year with two enormous games so far against the Colts and the Titans. Are you seeing Tyler Lockett basically being a top 10 wide receiver again this season? I say nothing. Metcalf is such a physical freak of nature. I think I think he's benefited the last couple games just because uh, they've been trying to shut down Metcalf, and I don't think that's going to continue. I think that'll even out, and the two of them together are going to be in that top fifteen. But I don't uh, I don't expect Lockett to stay in that top ten. The Seahawks are clearly going to spread the ball around and get it to a lot of different wide receivers, particularly given that they've been in two kind of semi-shootouts. I guess it wasn't particularly close against the Colts in Week 1, but they clearly got into one with Tennessee yesterday that was a fantastic game to watch. Their defense is going to give up a lot of points, and they're going to need to throw the ball, and Russell Wilson clearly has won the battle of the offseason where Pete Carroll said coming in that they were going to run the football more. I really didn't see them running the football a ton, especially in the second half yesterday. And right now the beneficiary has been Tyler Lockett because I think I saw DK Metcalf kind of banged up in that game. So given that Freddie Swain was also a top 10 option yesterday, it's possible that Tyler Lockett somehow defies all of my preseason wisdom and completely proves me wrong because I don't know if this is going to stop anytime soon. All right, let's go to the good, the bad, and the ugly. For my good, kind of the obvious, King Henry and Tyler Lockett. They were excellent yesterday in a really fun football game. What was your good? Heineke, Taylor Heineke, because on a short week, he played phenomenally well. Yeah, I can definitely see that one. My bad was George Kittle. Again, coming up with a subpar game, not a lot of targets. I think he only had like five targets in the game, four catches for 17 yards. For a guy that you probably drafted in the first three rounds as an elite tight end, he's just not getting the production there that you would hope for. And I don't know if it's going to tick up. I don't know what to think about the 49ers offense. Right now, it's been the Debo Samuel show, and that's about it. 
What was your bad? Famous Jameis and uh, Zach Wilson. As, as efficient and crisp as the Saints offense looked against Green Bay and Winston seemed to have some good control, he looked just as horrible as some of the worst games I've seen him play with the Buccaneers. And as far as Zach Wilson, all you need to say is what, was it four or was it five interceptions? I think it was only three, but I think he also lost a fumble. Oh, okay. Well, my my bad. So, but four turnovers. Yeah. Um, they might start chanting for Vinny Testaverde again in New York. Well, I think he's... <laughs> We always thought that the Patriots defense was going to be particularly good this year. And yes, they're missing their top cornerback right now, but that's a tough order for them to go against after you lost your left tackle for the season last week already. And this was a talent devoid team coming into the season. It's a tall order for him, but yeah, he was particularly bad and had some bad rookie mistakes yesterday. I I thought that that game was going to be lopsided and Frankly, I'm a little upset at myself that I didn't necessarily use that one as my eliminator pick. Uh, My ugly was Ronald Jones, who again had a subpar day, and I think he's going to make my top drop candidates list. In fact, he is on that list. After a negative performance in week one because he fumbled the football and was never heard from again, he only had 27 yards rushing and I think one catch for nine yards in this game that they were going up and down the field. I think at this point, if there's any running back to have out of Tampa Bay, it's going to be Leonard Fournette because he's the primary ball catch or pass catching back in that backfield. But even he, I don't think has reached 10 points in either of the games so far. Realistically, Tom Brady's just chucking it all over the yard and having fun doing it. I don't see anybody viable for that. And my other ugly was the Saints offense. You said it before. Jameis looked terrible. They looked like they couldn't move the ball at all. Their offensive line was giving up pressure in unique ways against the Panthers. And maybe the Panthers defense is really that good, or maybe the Saints offense is really just that bad because they didn't have to move it a lot on Green Bay last week and could run the football. So if they're going to go up against a team like Tampa Bay that can stop the run and maybe hold Elvin Kamara down, I think the Saints could have a tough year in front of them because it was like night and day compared to week one versus week two for them. What was your ugly? (laughs) I so wanted to use, uh, it's Greg Johnson, the kicker for the Vikings is my ugly, simply because... I think it's Greg Joseph. Greg Joseph, okay. Uh, Because it is the Vikings, and I despise the Vikings with a passion that is so visceral that I cannot describe it. Anyway, uh, to watch that... I would love to have given the ugly, but for the most part, he's been a decent kicker for them, so I can't do that. Now, I'm going to give the ugly to the Miami Dolphins offensive line for letting Tua get absolutely destroyed. That hit on him, there should be no reason an offensive lineman lets a defensive lineman get so clear and hit your quarterback that hard. I'm surprised he doesn't have like a dislocated shoulder or a hip or something just from the sheer impact. Well, one, I I think that's a little bit unfair because the play was designed to basically let that come free as an option. It was an RPO. But two, 
he did leave the game and was not heard from again after that hit. So yes, he did have something wrong with him. I think it was, a, he might've cracked several ribs and that probably means he's going to be out for several weeks. So we may get the Jacoby Brissett show. Uh, pickup streams, stashes and drops top pickups of the week right now for me. And this is not a great field. Uh, there's, a couple of rookie wide receivers that in dynasty are probably either owned. And if they're not, I have no idea why they're not, but this is more of a redraft type of thing. Zach Moss, who may have been cut by a lot of people after week one did have two touchdowns in this game. Looks like he might be the Buffalo goal line back as opposed to Josh Allen, who has been their kind of primary red zone ball carrier the last couple of years. Uh, he could be worth, stashing at least for a little while, even though Devin Singletary had the bigger game. James White uh, caught a lot of passes. Again, with Mac Jones back there, and he's not as big a runner as Cam Newton was, he may see his viability tick upward. He's still a valuable pay or a patriot for how Bill Belichick likes to run his offense. He may get a lot of check down passes. He may be flex viable at a certain point in the year once we get far enough with Mac Jones. I'd like to see him have a game that's not against the Jets, but it's a name to at least keep an eye on. Henry Ruggs, who we talked before, Rondale Moore, Elijah Moore, all three guys that saw a increase or at least a decent amount of target volume so far. Uh, well, Rondale Moore and Elijah Moore saw enough target volume to be a stash at least. I don't know if I'd be comfortable starting these guys yet, just yet, although there are guys that are much higher on Rondale Moore than I am. Henry Ruggs, again, I go back to my previous statements on that one. Max Williams, who had a large uh, volume game for the Cardinals yesterday as they were airing it out. He looked like he could be a fantasy viable tight end in a landscape that basically outside of the top five or six guys does not get a huge volume. Uh, you're basically hoping for one guy to score a touchdown each week to have something out of your tight end slot. If he continues that level of volume, he could somehow become a sneaky play. JD McKissick, we talked about Tim Patrick with Jerry Judy out. For whatever reason, the Denver Broncos seem to lose one receiver every year, and Tim Patrick somehow becomes their like second most productive wide receiver every single season, and yet no one ever talks about him. He, uh, I think, quietly has had a 10- and 12-point game so far in our half PPR league. And then finally, Sam Darnold had a really good game against a New Orleans offense, or excuse me, New Orleans defense, that I thought was much better than what they performed like yesterday. If he continues that for Carolina, he could be a viable streamer as well. Any comments on those? No, not really. I I think that's a pretty good list. Top drop candidates for me, Marquez Callaway, a guy that we talked about already last week, but if you weren't sold on the lack of production from the Saints wide receivers after week one, week two should probably convince you. I think he's ready already to be dropped, both in redraft and dynasty. Hunter Henry. Not going to be the number one option for the Patriots. I know he got some decent volume. I think he got five targets, four catches, but it was not for much yardage. I still think he's there primarily as a blocker first and that Janu Smith is the tight end to have in New England. I don't know if I would hold on to him either in redraft or in dynasty at this point. Ronald Jones, I kind of already talked about him, but his lack of productivity and the fact that Tampa Bay is not running the football, I think he is droppable. James Conner, 
is clearly the second back to Chase Edmonds coming in at this point. Chase Edmonds has not been running the football much with the Cardinals, as you mentioned up at the top. Kyler Murray's probably their top running back going forward, and they probably throw in order to technically run the football with a lot of short screens, short passes, stuff that's running after the catch. Chase Edmonds factors into that a lot more where he's in four or five wide receiver sets, gives them some versatility, as opposed to James Conner, who has, I think, under five points in the first two games. And then finally, Austin Hooper, a guy that was the number one paid tight end coming into last season before Travis Kelsey got paid, before George Kittle got paid, there are too many tight ends right now in Cleveland. David Njoku has clearly proven himself that he is going to be a viable target for them, at least for the one week against Kansas City. You also have Harrison Bryant there that they really like. I just don't see that the Browns are prolific enough to support even one tight end when they're rotating them like this, and they're a run-first offense. I just don't see him as being fantasy-relevant, particularly in redraft, and Dynasty, I don't think he's worth holding on to at this point. Any thoughts or any other nominees? No, no. I, I And as far as I, I, I still, I mean, I have Callaway. And I, uh, I, I'm i going to hang on to him for a couple more weeks because I still think they're trying to figure things out. I guess that would be the one thing I would say. I At this point in time, there's only one offensive weapon on, well, two two on the Patriots that I would have. So I would agree with some of your assessments there. Uh, And that's Damian Harris and actually uh, Nelson Aguilar. Other than that, there isn't anybody. All right. So that closes us up for the recap for week two. Thank you to all the listeners and dynasty players out there. We do appreciate you. We will be back again later this week. Thank you for filling in. Uh, We appreciate you doing this on, I guess, not necessarily short notice, but uh, with Ethan's schedule as it currently exists. Uh, Anything you'd like to say before we go? Uh, Just uh, enjoy the time and uh, enjoy playing the game. Um, If you haven't uh, started or got involved in a Dynasty League, please do so. It's a lot of fun because it's something that um, you have to work at building and think about. It's the closest to being a real general manager. So thanks for having me. If you'd like to contact the show or have a question for us, please write us at dynastydownload10 at gmail.com. Also, you can now follow us on Twitter at dydownload20. Find every episode of the show at dynasty-download.captivate.fm. And as always, please follow, rate, and review the show so that more people can discover that Dynasty Fantasy is the best form there is. This podcast was mixed, produced, and edited by Thomas Duncan as a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>